This episode is sponsored by the Women's History Initiative at the Utah Historical Society, seeking to amplify women's stories and deepen our collective understanding of the many roles women play in history. And by our patrons, Deb Potter, Skylar Collins, Julie Gray, Bree Ames Smith, Robin Brown, Kim Hokinson, Janelise Cannon, Jill Harrigan, Jamie Lang, Maria Sanchez, Heather McKinnon, Valerie Jacobson, Chantelle Oliver, and Caitlin McTaggart. Thank you so much for being our sponsors. We couldn't do it without you. Happy Santa Lucia Day, Olivia. Happy Santa Lucia Day. Today is the day, December 13th. Hmm. Swedish celebration of light. It's the greatest. And Lucy, St. Lucia, was a Christian martyr whose saint day happened to coincide with an ancient, ancient Swedish celebration of light. (laughs) And so now they are one and the same. And so, for our Christmas special today, I bring you a Swedish tale. Hooray! Well, I suppose I don't bring it to you because I had you read it for me. (laughs) I bring you... I, I bring me. We bring you, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> we bring the memoirs of Selma Lagerlöf. Great name. Beloved Swedish writer who wrote down all the Norse fairy tales. Hugely important hmm. folklorist. Um, and when she wrote down the stories, like we're talking the the late 1800s, early 1900s. As she wrote them down, she wrote them from the point of view of the women Hmm. in the stories. Which I think is pretty fabulous. Yeah. At the time that she was writing, Ibsen and Strindberg were the writers of the day. (laughs) And, you know, they were being hardcore realists digging around in the human psyche. Serious literature. Exactly. And everybody was bowing down to them as, you know, (laughs) these gods of serious literature. And and she is dreaming of being a writer, but she's not at all interested in that kind (laughs) of thing. She's interested in fairy tales. She's interested in sagas of the human heart, elemental, universal themes, but not not inside someone's psyche, but out there in the world. <laughs> so she struggled for a really long time to find her voice because she was doing <laughs> what everyone at the time was sort of belittling as, yeah. as silly She's literature. out of fashion. And so the most marvelous thing is that in 1909, she became the first woman to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. Yay! I love it so much. When she was nominated, here's what they commended her for. Quote, noble idealism, rich imagination, and beautiful forms. Hmm. Wonderful. And in her acceptance speech, she said that it was her upbringing in the countryside of Sweden that gave her the perspective to be able to write these stories. Um, She said that it was country folk who taught her to, quote, cast the glamour of poetry over grim rocks and gray waters. Hmm. Awesome. Well, the word glamour does in fact come from the same word as grammar and glamour meaning magic originally meant words spells are magical because words are magical and the glamour of the fae the magic of the fae is words oh i love that the very first book that just captured the public's imagination was The Wonderful Adventures of Nils, which Hmm. is still an absolute classic in Sweden. And even if you haven't read it or heard of it, I bet you've seen images of it because I hadn't read it before working on this episode, Hmm. but I recognize the illustrations because it's the wonderful image of a boy riding on a goose. Yeah flying around Sweden and and they're so utterly delightful. And so I don't know what I was expecting when I sat down to read The Wonderful Adventures of Nils and then all her (laughs) other books. I guess I was expecting more just sort of like delightful fairy tales, but I was so struck by the layers of meaning and the sophisticated, profound messages 
inside these seemingly simple tales. I totally get why she won the Nobel Prize. Absolutely deserves it. Amazing Yeah, they're wonderful. So then later on in life, she wrote her memoirs, memoirs Mm. of her childhood at her country home called Morbaka. And then she, that was so popular that she wrote sequels to that. So I had the joy of reading all of those and just sitting with her in her Mm -hmm. country home and meeting all of the characters. Amazing. And then I read The Wonderful Adventures of Nils, Mm -hmm. which opens with her as the character in the book revisiting her childhood home. And it just brings it all full circle so... Magically. Magically. That's the word. Her gift, I think, was just, as she said, to cast the glamour of poetry over grim rocks and gray Mm -hmm. waters. And what she did in her memoirs was to tell the story of her own life like a fairy tale. Mm. Which is so such a wonderful idea that anybody can do. And it really got me thinking, what if you told the story of your own life like a fairy tale? Yeah. Then how would the cast of characters come to life? And what kind of struggles would have meaning once you turn it into a fairy tale? Hmm. Absolutely wonderful. <laughs> I owe my personal introduction to Selma Lagerlof to one of our Swedish listeners... Josephine Admon. Hi, Josephine. (laughs) She's been so helpful in leading me to all of this great literature that I had never read before, Hmm. but also helping to find music appropriate to the time period. And so I asked her if she would share a little bit of her own experience in her own relationship with Selma to start us off. God Yule, Olivia. God Yule, Katie. Hi, my name is Josefine Oldman, and I'm a history student at Uppsala University in Sweden. And I didn't read that much by Selma Lagerlöf when I was a kid, but she was always kind of there in the background as part of the Swedish literary canon. She was the first woman to win a Nobel Prize, and since we're the ones in Sweden to give out the Nobel Prize and hold the ceremony every single year, um, in school they would always bring her up around the time of the year when it's Nobel Prize ceremony time. And they would always mention how she was the first woman to win a Nobel Prize and how important she was for that. And all of this kind of mythologized her in my tiny kid mind and made her out to be this grand madam and almost kind of royalty, Um, which was intensified by the fact that she was on the money when I was a kid, Um, specifically on the 20 kroner bill, which is equivalent to two US dollars. And this bill was my weekly allowance as a kid that I spent entirely on Saturday candy every single week. And then when I started studying history at university, I found out that she was incredibly gay and much more complicated of a person than she had been made up to be in my childhood. And that just made her seem so much more real to me, that she was so much more interesting than all of the norms and the roles that the adults around me had put her in when I was a kid. And her writing, which is the focus of this episode, was part of a cultural movement here in Sweden um, that focused on romanticizing Swedish culture and heritage. And through that, she was part of laying the foundation for kind of our image as a country and especially our image and identity connected to holidays. So I hope you enjoy this depiction of Swedish Christmas and good jul. The nursery at Marbaka was a light, warm, spacious room, the best in the whole house. 
But unhappily, it was a gable room. And to get there, one had to first go out into the lower front hall, then up a flight of steps and across a big attic. The attic stairs were steep and difficult for little feet to climb. And it was positively terrifying to walk the length of that attic, above all after dark. So it seemed almost necessary that little hands should have a large hand to slip into. But Bakaiza, the nursemaid, who had been accustomed to the dark of the wild forest, probably thought the attic at Morboka a nice safe place. She just stalked on and never so much as put out a hand. One was glad if one could even catch hold of a corner of her skirt. The beds in which the three children slept had been made by the clever old carpenter at Askerby, and they were quite decorative, with a little row of spindles across each headboard. But they were in two sections that pulled out and pushed in like a drawer. Large as the nursery was, the three beds, when open, took up a lot of space, so it was well that they could be folded during the day. Now that in itself was all right, but the clever old carpenter had somehow managed to make the beds in such a way that they sometimes sprang apart in the dead of the cold winter night. When that happened, you were of course startled out of your sweetest slumber. Finding your bed cut off in the middle, you drew yourself into the upper end and tried to catch back sleep again, but somehow it would not come. After a while, you stretched out your legs and let them dangle. In that position, you lay waiting for the Sandman till you were as wide awake as in broad day. Then at last, you decided to get up and try to push the two parts together. When you had apparently succeeded and had got the bedclothes nicely straightened, you crept back into bed as cautiously as possible and stretched out once more with a feeling of satisfaction. All went well, sleep came stealing on, then a careless turn and crickety crash! the bed was apart again. children had three little wooden chairs which they regarded as their greatest treasure. These had been presented to them at Christmas by the clever old carpenter of Askerby. Whether they were meant as compensation for his failure with the beds, they did not know, but they rather thought so. At any rate, the chairs were not failures. They were both light and strong and could be used as tables and sleds. The children could ride them all around the room stand upon them and jump to the floor, or lay them down and play. They were a cow shed, a stable, or a rabbit hutch. Oh, there was nothing they could not be used for. Why the children prized those chairs so highly could be seen at a glance by turning them upside down. On the bottom of each chair was the portrait of its owner. On one was Johann, a boy in blue with a long riding whip in his hand. On another posed Anna, a dainty little maid in a red frock and yellow leghorn hat, sniffing at a nosegay. While on the third was Selma, a tiny tot in a blue dress and striped apron. Now these portraits had been painted there to show to whom the chairs belonged, and the children regarded them as their property in quite a different sense from wearing apparel and other things they received from their parents. Their clothes traveled from one to another, and their nice toys were either locked away or set up in the corner bracket in the parlor. But the chairs, which bore their likenesses, who would have thought of depriving them of these? <laughs> Lieutenant Lagerlof. The children did have someone, though, who played with them. For Lieutenant Lagerlof whenever he had a spare moment, romped with his children. Good-humored, kindly man that he was, Lieutenant Lagerlof liked people. He was no respecter of persons, but spoke to all, high and low, and wanted to know how they lived their lives in their part of the country. He never lacked for topics of conversation. A smile lightened up the solemn faces of pious women when he passed them in the street. A gang of small boys tagged after him in the street, 
for they had discovered that he always had a pocket full of coppers. All the old retired sea captains, who in winter went about at home bored and longing to be out at sea, treated him to grog on their little verandas and told him of their adventures. Lieutenant Lagerlof believed that children, in order to grow up healthy and strong and become useful and capable men and women, should above all things acquire the habit of nooning. With that object in mind, always after the midday meal, he would take the two youngest children down to the farm office, which was in another building a few steps from the house. The office was a large room and probably looked about the same as in the days of the Marbaca clergyman when it had been their study. At the far end, under a window, there was a black leather lounge, and before it an oblong table. Along one side stood a bedstead, a black leather-seated chair, and a large black walnut writing table. On the wall behind the stove hung three fowling pieces, a sealskin game bag, a large horse pistol, a couple of powder horns, and a fencing foil, which crossed a broken saber. The girls arranged two leather pillows and a down pillow on the lounge as a headrest for the lieutenant, whereupon he stretched himself out, shut his eyes, and simulated sleep. Then, with wild shrieks, the children threw themselves upon him. He tossed them off as if they were little balls of yarn, but back they came like playful puppies. They pulled his whiskers, ruffled his hair, and clambered up onto the sofa, playing all sorts of pranks on him. When the lieutenant thought the children had had enough of play, he clapped his hands once and said, It's over now. Little good that did. The children kept right on. Again and again they crawled up onto the sofa, were flung off, and came bounding back, shrieking and making a fearful racket. When that had gone on for some little time, the lieutenant clapped twice and said, It's quite over now. Nor did that have any effect. The same performance was repeated amid shrieks and laughter until the lieutenant presently clapped his hands three times and said, Now it is really and truly over. The two children instantly hushed their noise and each crept into her own bed to sleep. After a little, the lieutenant began to snore. His snores were not very loud, but they were enough to keep the two children who were to acquire the habit of nooning, awake. The youngsters were not allowed to get out of bed or speak to each other, but had to lie perfectly still. Their eyes, meanwhile, wandered around the room. Gazing at the rag mats on the floor, they recognized their mother's and their aunt's old dresses, which had been cut up for carpets. They looked at the portrait of General Malmberg, which hung on the wall between two battle canvases, at the inkwell and pen, at the antlers and game bags, at the foil and the famous gun called the hair killer. They traced the figures in the quilt, they counted the stars on the wallpaper, the nail heads along the floor, and the checks in the curtains. The hour seemed dreadfully long. They heard the merry voices of other children, who were so big they did not have to take a midday nap, but ran about, happy and free, skating on ice or flying on sledges, the sole hope of the two little girls was a fly. She buzzed and buzzed round the lieutenant's face, making as much noise as she could. If only she kept at it long enough, she'd wake him up. The Housekeeper The old larder stood on posts. It was a crude structure. The door was so low one had to stoop to enter, but the lock and key were conspicuously large and strong. There were no windows, only small openings with trap shutters. In the winter, the larder was something to behold. On the lower floor, there were great bins of flour, which stood next to two huge vats packed to the brim with beef and pork in brine. Then came cowls and buckets of beef sausage, pork sausage, and potato sausage. 
In fact, all sorts of things that had been made up during the autumn slaughter. In one corner stood a barrel of salted herring, a keg of salted white fish, and a firkin of salmon. Besides, there were the tins of salted beans, salted spinach, and firkins of green and yellow peas. On the upper floor, there were tubs of butter of the summer's churning, stored for winter use. Long rows of cheeses were arranged on shelves above the openings, and from the ceiling hung year-old hams. The home-raised hops were preserved in a sack the size of a bolster, and the malted grain in a similar one. Here were provisions for a whole year. It was the housekeeper who ruled over the larder. That was her domain, and the key to it seldom got into another's hands. Aunt Lovisa might potter in the pantry or milk room, but she would hardly have ventured into the larder. The housekeeper was also supreme in the kitchen. Making small cakes or putting up preserves and fruit juices might well be left to Aunt Lovisa, but when it came to roasting a fowl, making a cheese, or baking holiday knackerbrot, it was the old housekeeper who took charge. The little Lagerlof children were very fond of her, and looked up to her as the most important member of the household. They had noticed that whenever relatives came to visit, the first thing they did was to go out to the kitchen and pay their respects to the housekeeper. If anything unusual happened in the family, Lieutenant Lagerlof would always call her in and tell her about it. And when Johann returned to school after the Christmas holidays, he was told to say goodbye to the housekeeper. They had also heard outsiders say that Fru Lagerlof was in great luck to have such a treasure in her kitchen, that nothing was ever wasted under her watchful eye. They said, moreover, that nowhere else could one get such Christmas ale, such knackerbrot, and such tasty dishes as were set before you at Marbaka. And it was all due to the old housekeeper, they declared. So it was not strange the children regarded her as the main prop of the home, and firmly believed that were she not there, Marbaka would collapse. The Roof Trusses When Lieutenant Lagerlof and his little children walked the snowy fields, they often talked of what they would do if the king came to Marbaka. In those days, the king used to drive through farmland several times a year on his way to and from Norway, and he had to stop somewhere for refreshment and rest. Most frequently, he stayed at the great manors which lay along his route. Of course, there was not the least likelihood that the king would come to a little unknown place like Marbaka, which, to boot, lay far from the great highway. But that did not trouble the lieutenant and his little girls. Now it was only a pleasure to build in their imagination a triumphal arch for his majesty, and strew flowers on the snow in his way as he drove up. The little girls wondered if they should dress in white when the king came and the lieutenant generously promised them new white frocks made by the best seamstresses in East Amtervik for the grand occasion. The lieutenant and the children pictured to themselves how the king, when nearing Marbaka, would suddenly shade his eyes with his hand so as to see better. What is that great white building in the great white snow over there? he would ask. Have they two churches in this parish? No, your majesty, the lieutenant would then reply, for, of course, he was to ride with the king. That white building is not a church. It is my cow barn. Then the king would look at him in wide-eyed wonder and say, By Jove, you must be a deucedly clever fellow to have built yourself a barn like that. How they were to house the king and all his retinue in the little one-story dwelling, that was an almost unsolvable problem. The lieutenant had often talked of building another story, and they were all agreed that when it was finished it would be an easy matter to entertain the king. The lieutenant and his wife might have to spend the night in the hayloft, 
And the children? Well, they could sleep in the rabbit hutch. Now that tickled the little girls immensely. And then, when the king was leaving Morbaka, he would present Fru Lagerlof with a gold brooch and Aunt Lovisa with a gold bracelet, and the old housekeeper would receive a large shawl pin of silver. Before stepping into his carriage, his majesty would shake hands with the lieutenant and say, Thanks and honor to you, Eric Gustav Logerlof. It is but a modest bit of my realm that is in your keeping, but I see that you take good care of it. Those words the lieutenant would remember with joy as long as he lived. He and his children had right merry times on these little excursions into the land of make-believe. Then, lo and behold, at the close of the 1860s, the lieutenant was ready to start remodeling the house. He cut out larger window openings and put up new tile stoves, papered the walls of the parlor and living room, and built a large veranda in front of the old porch. The whole roof was to be torn off, the trusses raised, and the timber walls heightened. The year before, he had hired a couple of good carpenters to prepare the new roof trusses, so that the roof could be raised and covered as quickly as possible. The workmen had but just finished the trusses when the lieutenant got word that his father-in-law had passed away. This was a sad loss and a heavy blow as well. Now out of his estate, he must pay all contracted debts. Once paid, Johann would be nearly grown and sent to university. Therefore, he thought it best to postpone the building work for a year or two. But fresh obstacles continually loomed in the way of this work. One year the lieutenant was ill. The next he had to help a brother-in-law who had once been well-to-do, but must now have a yearly stipend. It was with no light heart he relinquished his cherished plan of rebuilding the house that was to have been his crowning work. All his life he had dreamed of erecting a fine manor house on his beloved Morbaka. The great piles of timber and the finished roof trusses lay in the backyard for many years. Whenever the lieutenant walked past them, he turned his head away. He could not bear to look at them. His little daughters grew uneasy over the delay, year after year, and one of the girls finally mustered the courage to ask her father when he was going to put up those roof trusses. I'm afraid never, my child. When he said this, his face twitched, and there was a strange catch in his voice. Then, quickly recovering himself, he added, banteringly, But it doesn't matter now, my girl. They are building a railway to Norway, and hereafter the king won't come asking for a night's lodging, either at Morbaka or at any other manor in farmland. This season of What's Her Name is sponsored by the Women's History Initiative at the Utah Historical Society. Think you know Utah history? Think again. The Women's History Initiative highlights Utah's dynamic history makers. Eight sovereign nations in Utah since time immemorial, pioneers, explorers, immigrants, entrepreneurs, visionaries, and dreamers who have made a home there ever since. Join the Society to read the Utah Historical Quarterly, attend free virtual events, and get news about the future Museum of Utah. Visit history.utah.gov slash uwh to learn more. And the long-awaited statue of what's-her-name favorite Dr. Martha Hughes Cannon will be installed in the National Statuary Hall collection at the U.S. Capitol within the next few months, just the 13th woman featured in the hall. Follow at Utah State History on Instagram to catch Martha on the move as she makes her journey to D.C. History.utah.gov slash uwh. Fuckerfeld. The tinkle of a silver bell is heard from the road.
Colour Sergeant Carl von Fuckerfeld comes driving. Was it not he who once upon a time was proclaimed the handsomest man in farmland, if not in all Sweden? Was it not he who was the idol of the Stockholm ladies the winter season of 1820? Was it not he who made up sleighing parties and led cotillions with a dash that put all the beau cavaliers of the hot monde into the shade? Was it not he who danced so divinely and conversed so enchantingly that his fine relatives sent him letters of invitation, couched in the humblest terms, because the young ladies could have no pleasure at a ball not graced by his presence? And was it not he who had such astounding luck at the gaming table, it enabled him to hobnob with counts and barons, and outshine them all in gallantry and elegance? Was it not he who, by the way, at a private theatrical in the home of Admiral Wachmeister, played the leading lover, and sang his couplets so passionately that the next morning he found a score of love letters in his postbox? Was not he the first to drive through the streets of Stockholm with harness and trappings adorned with chimes of silver bells? Was it not he who went down to Göteborg, where he passed himself off as a Finnish baron, and for a whole fortnight spoke with a Finnish accent, while running a gaming house for the benefit of wealthy merchants' young sons? Were ever such grand fair balls, such merry Christmas feasts, such jolly crayfish parties. Color Sergeant von Fackenfeld comes driving down the rocky road, while the lone silver bell tinkles feebly and almost mournfully. In the days of his power and glory, the sixty silver bells which hung from the harness and trappings jingled right merrily. They had, so to speak, rung in his triumphs, had heralded the coming of a conqueror, but now, when there is only one solitary bell, it seems merely to announce the approach of a man whose day of fortune and happiness is over. The color sergeant rides behind his old horse, Kale, which is so noticeably small that everyone he meets in the road turns to look after it. Driving cast Gunnersby in, he sees two young girls standing at the well. He salutes them with a flourish of his whip and gives them one of his most seductive smiles, but receives in return an indifferent glance. The girls do not drop the well bucket in wonder, or stand wrapped with cheeks aglow to gaze after him. Color Sergeant von Fackenfeld gives his horse a lash of the whip. He is no fool. He knows that his hair is gray and his face full of wrinkles, and that his mustache is thin and faded that one eye is filmed with a gray cataract, while the other, having been operated on, is distorted by a magnifying monocle. Yet he feels that people should not entirely forget what he once was. True, he has no better home nowadays than two hired rooms at a farmhouse in Storkill Parish. His only possessions are a horse, a carriole, a sleigh, and a few pieces of furniture. He sits there in a mangy old fur coat, and a still shabbier sealskin cap. He wears thick lynx mittens to protect his gouty hands. For all that, he thinks it should not be completely forgotten that once he was Fackerfeld, the celebrated Fackerfeld. Pressing his lips together, he tells himself he has nothing to regret. If he could live his life over again, he would have it the same. All that youth and health and good looks can give a man he has enjoyed. Love and adventure in fullest measure. One thing, perhaps, Color Sergeant von Wackenfeld wishes he had left undone. He should not have married Anna Lagerlof, the noblest woman he had ever known. He had loved her madly, but he never should have espoused her. Was it not through his success as a gambler and a lover that he had won his fame? Could he change his nature by marrying? Yes, he regrets his marriage. His wife was not suited to him, but he concedes that she was too good for him. She had wanted orderliness, industry, tranquility, 
and comfort, and had worn herself out trying to make a home for them such as she had had at Morbaka. After 17 years of domestic infelicity, when Anna von Wachenfeld could endure no more, she died. Then misfortunes of all sorts befell him. His creditors showed no further indulgence, but took away his home. He had to give up gambling, for now he lost as soon as he touched a card. The gout had also come, and the gray cataract. Before he had reached sixty, he was white-haired, stiff-jointed, half-blind, helpless, and poverty-stricken. It would have been no small comfort to him now to have had his good, loving wife still with him. Since her death, he had been cut off from all social intercourse. No one cared whether he lived or died. No one invited him to their homes. When the holidays come round, there is just one place in the world where he can go for a bit of the old life. And that place is Marbaka, whence he had taken his wife. He knows what they think and feel there that he had made her life very unhappy. Nevertheless, he journeys thither once a year for the great holiday festivities. But for these visits to Marbaka, his life would be intolerable. The silver bell rings out a loud plaint. The color sergeant has just dealt his little horse a stinging blow. Life has many bitter fruits, which one must take. It seems quite proper that the horse should share the pain of his master. If the little Marbaka children had not known by any other signs that Christmas was at hand, they would have guessed it when Color Sergeant von Wachenfeld appeared. They were overjoyed when they saw his horse and cutter coming up the driveway. They raced through the house shouting the glad tidings and rushed out on the steps to greet him, crying good day and welcome. They fetched bread for his horse and carried his lean carpet bag inside. It was remarkable that the children were always so glad to see Color Sergeant von Wachenfeld, for he never brought them any goodies or presents. But they must have thought him a part of Christmas, which no doubt accounted for their joy. Anyhow, it was well they were friendly, for the grown folk made no ado over him. In crossing the yard to the house, he walked with the aid of a cane. When Aunt Lovisa took his hands, she felt how swollen they were, and when she looked up into his face, his distorted eyes stared at her horribly. Then a good part of her resentment vanished. She thought to herself that he had already received his punishment, and she was not going to add woe to woe. It was nice that Wachenfeld could come to us again this Christmas, she forced herself to say, whereupon she poured him some coffee and he went over to his accustomed place between the porcelain stove and the folded card table. The orchestra. It was an impromptu orchestra that played in the new year at Morbaka. There was Major Erin Krona, a Finn by birth, who in former days had lived in a palatial home and been a grand seigneur, but who now in his old age occupied a rented room at a farmhouse, where he led a dull and monotonous existence, much like that of Color Sergeant von Wachtenfeld. He was reputed to be a master of the French horn, but since he had become poor and lonely, he had not been heard to play. And there was Herr Tyberg, began life as a drummer boy with the Varmland Regiment, and who surely would have killed himself with drink had not the lieutenant at Marbaka by a mere chance discovered the man's special aptitude for teaching small children, and engaged him as a tutor for his own little ones, and later found him a position as teacher in the elementary school at East Amtervik. Then there was Jan Asker, who had been in the regiment band, but who was now church beetle and gravedigger at East Amtervik. He came of an old family of musicians and used to play the clarinet at all the pleasant weddings and dances. 
His was an embittered and restless spirit. The only thing that reconciled him to life was music. And there was the foundry bookkeeper, Geyer, who lived in the attic of the school building. He was passionately fond of music, but being too poor to provide himself with any sort of instrument, he had painted a keyboard on a common deal table at which he sat and played. Then too, there was Sexton Melanos, who had received instruction from Dean Frixell himself and could scribble verse, cobble shoes, mend furniture, and run a farm. He was the star entertainer at all the weddings and wakes, and was moreover the best schoolmaster in the whole of Frixdalen. Every Sunday morning he had to play the wheezy organ at the Amtervik church, which he never could have endured if he'd not had his violin to console him on Sunday afternoons, for he was a musical soul. These five had arranged to meet at Morbaca during the Christmas season, while there was still something left of the Christmas ale, the Christmas ham, and spiced bread. They marched up to the front porch singing Portugal, Spanien, Stora Britannien. Lieutenant Lagerlof, upon hearing that song, jumped up and ran out to greet them. Color Sergeant von Wackenfeld was soon to follow. Lieutenant sent Johann up to the attic to fetch the guitar, the French horn, the flute, and the triangle, while he himself rushed into the bedroom and pulled his violin from under the bed. Placing it on a chair, he unlocked the case and reverently uncovered the violin, which lay wrapped in a red silk handkerchief. The toddy tray had been brought, and hot drinks made for all, except Herr Tyberg, of course, who had sworn off for good. They decided it was not worthwhile to pass the evening at card-playing or in small talk, but they would have some music. It was this the lieutenant had anticipated, so now he went for the instruments he had hurriedly assembled. His violin he offered to Sexton Melanos, who most humbly protested that there were those in the room far more worthy than he to handle this, the greatest of all musical instruments. But when none claimed the distinction, he was as pleased as if he had suddenly come into a fortune, and at once proceeded to tune up. The flute went to Herr Tyberg, of course. It had been his instrument in the regiment, when he had outgrown the drum. He was well acquainted with the old flute at Marabaka, and knew it to be always dry and leaky. So he ran out to the kitchen to dip the flute in pale beer to make it hold together. The guitar was handed to bookkeeper Geyer, who had a long, thin face, a long, slender neck, limpid blue eyes, and long, slim fingers. There was a certain wistfulness about him, and with a little girlish laugh, he strung the guitar ribbon round his neck and tenderly pressed the instrument to his heart, as if embracing a sweetheart. The guitar had only three strings, but they were enough for him, who was wont to perform on nothing better than a deal table. Church beetle Asker had had the foresight to bring his own clarinet. It was in the back pocket of his greatcoat, so that he had only to go down to the office and fetch it. Color Sergeant von Wackenfeld, sitting in his usual corner by the fire, tried to put on a good face, though he could not perform on any musical instrument with his gout-stiffened fingers. But the lieutenant now went over to him with the triangle, which he could manage with ease. So the color sergeant, too, was happy. Major Erin Krona sat blowing smoke through his big white mustache. He saw how one after another had been provided with an instrument, but feigned indifference. Just give me a couple of pot lids, he said to the lieutenant, so that I may at least join in the noise-making. I know, of course, that the instrument I play is not to be found in this house. Like a streak, the lieutenant darted into the parlor and came back with a brilliantly polished French horn with green silk cord and tassel that he had managed to procure for the major. What do you say to this, uncle? he asked him. The old major beamed. Ha! You're a real fellow, Brother Eric Gustaf. He put down his pipe and began to toot vociferously, sending out a volley of ear-splitting blasts. Now that the guests were all furnished with instruments, they remarked that the host himself had none. Whereupon the lieutenant produced a little wooden whistle, one end of which must be placed in a glass of water when one blew upon it. 
By so doing, one could make trills as sweet as any nightingales. At last, they begged Fru Lagerlof to accompany them on the piano. In honor of the major, they first essayed the stirring Finnish martial hymn, The March of the Bjornborgers. Fru Lagerlof struck the opening chords, and the orchestra followed as best it could. It was a clang and a din that took the house by storm. They did their best, all of them. Sexton Malinos, Jan Asker, and Herr Tyberg played with a certain assurance. But the major frequently lagged behind, and the lieutenant put in a few haphazard trills, due in part to the freakish behavior of his nightingale, and in part to a mischievous desire to throw the others out of time. When they had played the march through once, they were so enlivened and interested they wanted to go over it again, to get it quite perfect. The major blew and tooted till his eyes were red and his cheeks distended, as if ready to split. Obviously, he was not as proficient as he had made himself out, for he did not play in time, even on second trial. Of a sudden, he jumped up and hurled the French horn across the room toward the chimney corner with such force that it came near crushing Color Sergeant von Wackenfeld's most sensitive toe. Hang it all, he shouted. I'm not going to sit here and spoil the Bjornborgers' march. Play on, you who can. They took up the march for the third time, and now the major sang. He carried the air in a deep, rich bass that filled the whole house. The human voice flowed on like a mighty tide, bearing along with it the tinny old piano, the shrill clarinet, the violin, scraped in old fiddler fashion, the three-stringed guitar, the sergeant's triangle, and the lieutenant's capricious nightingale. Their hearts warmed, and now they seemed to be marching with the brave Bjornberg lads to take their country back from the Russians. When the march was finished, the lieutenant motioned to his wife, who struck up Worthy Father's Noble Shadows, which was the major's great showpiece. He rendered the song with power and feeling, and the instruments seemed almost to sing with him. Over on the straight-backed sofa, quiet as mice, sat the children, Johan, Anna, and Selma, listening. What could they do but keep still when the grown-ups played and carried on like youngsters? When the major sang Worthy Father's Noble Shadows, they thought he sang of himself and the others who were performing in the living room. To the children, they were all like ghosts of a vanished something, shadows of a great and glorious past, of which they could but catch the faint gleams of an afterglow. Epilogue from The Wonderful Adventures of Niels There was a woman who thought of writing a book about Sweden, which would be suitable for children to read in the schools. She had thought of this from Christmas time until the following winter, but not a line of the book had she written. At last she became so tired of the whole thing that she said to herself, You are not fitted for such work, and let another write this book which has got to be serious and instructive, and in which there must not be one untruthful word. It was as good as settled that she would abandon the idea, but she thought, very naturally, it would have been agreeable to write something beautiful about Sweden. Finally, it occurred to her that maybe it was because she lived in a city, with only gray streets and house walls around her, that she could make no headway with the writing. Perhaps if she were to go into the country, where she would see woods and fields, that it might go better. First of all, she would write about the place where she had grown up. It was a little homestead, far removed from the great world, where many old-time habits and customs were retained. She thought that it would be entertaining for children to hear of how they celebrated Christmas and New Year and Easter and Midsummer Day in her home. What kind of house furnishings they had what the kitchen and larder were like, how the cowshed, stable, lodge, and bathhouse had looked. 
but when she was to write about it, the pen would not move. Perhaps she ought to make a little trip to the old homestead, that she might see it again before writing about it. She had not been there in many years. She had seen many places that were more pretentious and prettier, but nowhere could she find such comfort and protection as in the home of her childhood. It was not such an easy matter for her to go home as one might think, for the estate had been sold to people she did not know. She felt that they would receive her well, but she did not care to go to the old place and sit and talk with strangers, for she wanted to recall how it had been in times gone by. That was why she planned it, so as to arrive there late in the evening, when the day's work was done and the people were indoors. She had never imagined that it would be so wonderful to come home. As she sat in the cart and drove toward the old homestead, she fancied that she was growing younger and younger every minute, and that soon she would no longer be an oldish person with hair that was turning gray, but a little girl in short skirts with a long flaxen braid. As she recognized each farm along the road, she could not picture anything else than that everything at home would be as it had in bygone days. Her father and mother and brothers and sisters would be standing on the porch to welcome her. The old housekeeper would run to the kitchen window to see who was coming. The nearer she approached the place, the happier she felt. Winter was once again settling in, which meant a busy time with a round of duties. It must have been all these varying duties which prevented home from ever being monotonous. All along the way, farmers were digging potatoes, and probably they would be doing likewise at her home. That meant that they must begin immediately to grate potatoes and make potato flour. The seamstresses, who used to make up their homespun dresses, had to come at this time, of course. And those were always two pleasant weeks, when the womenfolk sat together and busied themselves with sewing. But the greatest rush came around Christmas time. Lucia Day, when the housemaid went about dressed in white with candles in her hair and served coffee to everybody at five in the morning. Lucia Day came as a sort of reminder that for the next two weeks they could not count on much sleep. For now they must brew the Christmas ale, steep the Christmas fish in lye, and do their Christmas baking and Christmas scouring. She was in the middle of the baking, with pans of Christmas buns and cookie platters all around her, when the wagon reached the end of the lane. She started like one suddenly awakened from a sound sleep. It was dismal for her, who had just dreamed herself surrounded by all her people, to be sitting alone in the late evening. As she stepped from the wagon and started to walk up the long lane that she might come unobserved to her old home, she feared so keenly the contrast between then and now that she would have preferred to turn back. There was the pond, which in her youth had been full of carp and where no one dared fish because it was her father's wish that the carp should be left in peace. Over there were the men's servant quarters, the larder and barn, with the farmyard bell over one gable and the weather vane over the other. The house yard was like a circular room, as it had been in her father's time, for he had not the heart to cut down as much as a bush. She lingered in the shadow under the big mountain ash at the entrance to the farm, and stood looking about her. As she stood there, a strange thing happened. A flock of doves came and lit beside her. She could hardly believe that they were real birds, for doves are not in the habit of moving about after sundown. It must have been the beautiful moonlight that had awakened these. There had been many flocks of doves at the manor when her parents lived there, for the doves were among the creatures which her father had taken under his special care. Who could tell but the doves had flown out in the night to show her that they had not forgotten that once upon a time they had a good home there. Perhaps her father had sent his birds with a greeting to her, so that she would not feel so sad and lonely when she came to her former home. As she thought of this, there welled up within her such an intense longing for the old times that her eyes filled with tears. 
Life had been beautiful in this place. They had had weeks of work broken by many holiday festivities. They had cultivated grain, but also roses and jasmine. They had spun flax, but had sung folk songs as they spun. They had lived by themselves. And this was why so many stories and legends were stored away in their memories. They had worn homespun clothes, but they had also been able to lead carefree and independent lives. Nowhere else in the world do they know how to get so much out of life as they did at one of those little homesteads in my childhood, she thought. There was just enough work and just enough play, and every day there was a joy. Then she turned to the flock of doves and said to them, laughing at herself all the while, I have wandered long enough in strange places. Won't you fly to father and tell him that I long to come home? The moment she had said this, the flock of doves rose and flew away. She tried to follow them with her eyes, but they vanished instantly. It was as if the whole white company had dissolved in the shimmering air. The doves had only just gone when she heard a couple of piercing cries from the garden, and as she hastened thither she saw a singular sight. There stood a tiny person, no taller than a hand's breadth, struggling with a brown owl. At first she was so astonished that she could not move, but when the boy cried more and more pitifully, she stepped up quickly and parted the fighters. The owl swung herself into a tree, and the boy stood. Thank you for your help, he said, but it was very stupid of you to let the owl escape. I can't get away from her, because she is sitting up in the tree watching me. It was thoughtless of me to let her go, but to make amends. Can't I accompany to your home? asked she who wrote stories, somewhat surprised to think that in this unexpected fashion she had gone into conversation with one of the tiny folk. I understand that you take me for one of the tiny folk, said the boy, but I'm a human being like yourself, although I have been transformed by an elf. That is the most remarkable thing I have ever heard. Wouldn't you like to tell me how you happened to get into such a plight? The boy did not mind telling her of his adventures, and as the narrative proceeded, she who listened to him grew more and more astonished and happy. What luck to run across one who has traveled all over Sweden on the back of a goose, thought she. Just this which he is relating I shall write down in my book. Now I need worry no more over that matter. It was well that I came home. To think that I should find such help as soon as I came to the old place. Instantly, Another thought flashed into her mind. She had sent word to her father by the doves that she longed for home, and almost immediately she had received help in the matter she had pondered so long. Might not this be the father's answer to her prayer? Once upon a time, special thanks to all our friends in Sweden who helped us create this episode, including, of course, Josephine Adman, the Haga vocal ensemble, whose song here is arranged by Margareta Jalkus, with traditional numbers by Blos Ballet-Jochtagel, featuring Osa Larsson, Aaron Kenny, Kevin McLeod, DJ Williams, The Westerlies, and Wayne Jones. You can find links to all of this great music on our website. Wishing you a very happy Lucia Day, Hanukkah, Christmas, Diwali, Solstice, Yule, New Year, and Light in the Dark of Winter.
Registration is now open on What's Your Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. <laughs> 